Well, the story of the Bible begins in the garden, but ends in a city. And I think the garden image is what we gravitate to when we begin to think about heaven. The garden gives us this idea of a raw, pristine state. Uh, it speaks volumes easily of the glory of God and the beauty of all creation. And I think we still catch a glimpse of the garden in nature today. Last week, we were out at uh, Mark and Katie Banham's place, and it was very easy for us to imagine the beauty of heaven as we saw the beauty of nature reminding us of the Garden of Eden right at the beginning of the Bible. But today we're in a city. What does the city have to tell us about heaven? Well, creation, nature, the whole earth is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the children of God. So even nature around us is not perfect, and we know that. But the city, how does that tell us about heaven? I think we have to understand that in the Bible, when they pick up the image of the city, we come to realize that the city isn't some evil mistake. It's not simply some human entity that's devoid of godliness, that there is a redemptive quality to the city as well. The image of the city speaks of, of the redemption of the work of humanity that's blessed by God's direct presence. That's what we find in the passage that was read for us in Revelation. And so we catch a glimpse of the city as it's meant to be as we begin to think about heaven and look at the passage in Revelation. But in Revelation, it's not just any old city. It's a very special city. It's the New Jerusalem. And in order to understand Revelation and the image of the New Jerusalem, we have to spend time with the Old Testament prophets because it's in prophets like Isaiah especially that we begin to hear rumblings of the new heavens and the new earth, of the new Jerusalem, of the promise of something greater, something better. We need to hear the enduring hope of the Old Testament prophets in order to understand Revelation, but in order to catch a glimpse of heaven. In Isaiah chapter 60, one of the things Isaiah said is this, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Keep that in mind as you read Revelation chapter 22, because it comes right out, and John uses it to talk about the new Jerusalem. Or even Haggai, a prophet that we kind of rarely turn to, he speaks about uh, the new Jerusalem in this way. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord. And in this place, I will grant peace. There's no peace in Jerusalem right now, but there's going to be a new Jerusalem promised by God in which there will be shalom, perfect peace. Ezekiel had his dream of the rebuilt Jerusalem in Ezekiel 40 and, and 48. And we even find the, the image of the 12 gates of the city that John takes right into Revelation. We find that in Ezekiel chapter 48 as well. And so the prophets held this conviction, a conviction that the city would once again stand for the glory of God and the blessing of the nations. But we understand when we come to Revelation that John sees that this promise is kept not so much in the bricks and the mortar of present day Jerusalem, but in a greater city, a city that comes down from heaven, from God, a city that is eternal. So the new Jerusalem stands for something greater than the physical city that bears its name. 
It's kind of like the presidency in the United States. There's been lots of different characters that have filled that office. But the office of the presidency stands for something far greater than any individual that fills that office. In the same way, the idea and the concept of the New Jerusalem is far greater than the bricks and mortar city. It stands for something greater, something of greater value, something of more enduring quality. It stands for God's perfect presence and his shalom. It is an image to us of heaven in the final state. So what's in this city? Well, if you read Revelation 20, 21, and 22, you get a number of things that we can anticipate in this city. We see that there's a river and a tree of life. So it speaks of the new Eden. We also see that there's people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation. I guess we better learn to get along now because we'll be together for all eternity. No more racism, no more prejudice. People from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation. When we used to travel when I was a kid and I traveled with my mom and dad, they had this crazy travel song. And I won't sing it all for you, but one of the lines was this, who's gonna be there? Who are we gonna see there? Gonna be a big surprise. Well, that's true of heaven too. I think we're gonna be delighted and surprised at the multitude worshiping God together. But we also find that the very throne of God is in this city. The very throne of God is a symbol. It stands for the perfect rule and reign of God where there is perfect peace. So there's some of the things that we can anticipate in the city, those symbols that speak of greater values, of eternal truths that we find in this place. But it's interesting also to note what's not there. In fact, heaven and the New Jerusalem is defined often by what's not there, what doesn't make it into the city. Well, we find that there's no more curse. There's no more curse. There's also no more tears. There's no sorrow. There's no pain. There's no greed. There's no jealousy. There's no death. There's none of these things in this new Jerusalem. We also find an interesting thing. It says that there's no more sea. And some people wonder, why is that? But the image of the sea, especially for uh, the Jews and Israel in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the sea was an image of chaos. It was actually an image of evil. It was an image of fear. And so there's this picture for us, no more sea, there's no more chaos. Do you remember the time when Jesus was traveling with his disciples over the Sea of Galilee and a big storm came up and they were terrified because the sea was something to be feared. It, it represents the chaos before creation. And Jesus stands up and he calms the sea. What do the disciples do? They don't say, oh, thanks, glad that storm's over. No, they were terrified, not of the sea now, but of Jesus. Because who is this that has the power to tame chaos, to tame evil, to have control over the power of the sea? And so we find in this new Jerusalem, there's no more sea. There's no more sea in this new heaven, new earth as an image to us that there's no more evil. There's no more chaos. God's reign is complete. But here's another thing that's not in heaven. No more temple. That's an interesting thing that's left out of the description that John gives us in Revelation. Why is there no more temple? I mean, this was the great hope of the prophets that Jerusalem would stand again and the temple would stand again. But in John's image of Revelation that he, of, of heaven that he gives to us, there's no more temple. Why not? 
There's no need for it. It's interesting that John in Revelation, he actually combines two great Old Testament images that are found in Ezekiel, the concept of the temple that's found there, but also the concept in 1 Kings chapter 6 of the cube. And he combines these in some interesting measurements and some interesting geometry. But what he's really after is saying that there is no need for a separate physical temple, that in fact, the fullness of God's presence fills every aspect of the new Jerusalem. So in, in essence, the whole place is the temple. The whole place is the meeting place with God. So this vision of John, it's the ultimate fulfillment of the hope of the prophets. Heaven is the redeemed city of God. Well, there are a few other things that are not present in the new heavens and new earth. There are a few other things that are missing from the new Jerusalem. And this is where the conversation gets difficult because the reality is, as we find in scripture and even in the passage that was read for us, that some people don't make it to heaven. Not everybody is included. There are those who are victorious, as it's talked about in Revelation, those who continue to be faithful. It says that those people will inherit this glorious space, this new Jerusalem. But there are those that are unbelieving, those who betray their faith, says John, and they simply will not. Even William Barclay, who's one of my favorite commentators, and he's known for being a bit of a universalist, even he has to admit that when it comes to scripture and it comes to the passage that was read for us, he says this, the bliss is not to everyone, but only to them who remain faithful when everything else seeks to seduce them from their loyalty. This is an interesting concept for us and a difficult one for us to deal with. And so we have to ask the question today, who will be in heaven? Who's going to make it? Well, it's very clear that as we come to the new Jerusalem, as we come to this God's holy space being reunited with earthly space, that there is no sin. There is no evil in this holy space. So in order to get to heaven, here is the absolute key. The key is you must be perfect. You have to be perfect in order to get to heaven. Even Jesus says this in Matthew chapter five and verse 20. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a crazy standard. It's so high. Who can attain to that? Who then can enter heaven? I mean, who's perfect? I would say Pastor Samuel's pretty close, but close isn't good enough. We have to be perfect. It's kind of like making an omelet for the whole family. When you crack all 12 eggs into the bowl and you're cracking them and it's going great and you get to egg number 12 and it is completely rotten. I mean, it's a disgusting egg. It's not just a little off, it's, it's like gray and stinky and you crack it into the bowl and it's too late. Do you say to yourself, oh, well, there's 11 good eggs in there. What's one bad egg in the bowl? No, the whole thing is spoiled. That's what sin does to us. Or another image might be a mirror. Uh, we're surrounded by uh, glass and images of mirrors right now. And, and if you have a mirror, even if one part of the mirror is broken, the whole mirror is said to be broken. And that's the same with God's law. Even if one small part of it is broken, 
then we've broken the whole law. So none of us are perfect. And the Bible says it really clearly. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So who then can enter heaven? Well, really only one person, and that is Jesus. This is what it says in the message translation of Romans chapter 3. Listen to this. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear the world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of the public to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of the sins he had so patiently endured. This is not only clear, but it's now. This is current history. God set things right. He also made it possible for us to live in his righteousness. That's the key. If Jesus is the only one that really can get into heaven, then we must be in Christ. We have to be in Jesus. It can't be in our own righteousness. It can't be in our own actions. It has to be in the actions of one who is perfect because none of us are. So who will be in heaven? Those who are in Christ. That's what I can say for absolute certainty. So just as there are two great realms, the realm of heaven, which is God's realm, and, and the realm of earth, which is humanity, and in the end, we see those realms come together as a complete whole. So there are two family heads. We're told this very clearly in scripture. There is the head of the family that is Adam, and he is the head of sinful humanity. But then there's another head of the family, and that is Jesus. And Jesus is the head of redeemed humanity. It harkens back to the household system that we find in New Testament times. In the household system, the head of the house set the identity for the entire household. And the household could be made up of uh, immediate family members, extended family members, workers, because the household was an economic unit. It could be made up of slaves. It could be made up of a number of people, but they all derive their identity from the head of the household. That's why we find in the New Testament that when the head of a household became a follower of Jesus, the whole household was baptized. We actually find that around the world still today. When the head of a tribe sometimes, or a head of a, a, a large area in some parts of the world, when they become a follower of Jesus, the whole tribe identifies as followers of Jesus. And so that's a very important image to hold on to as we understand what it means to be in Christ. We are born naturally into Adam's family. We are sinners by nature. We're part of Adam as our representative head. We take our identity from him. But when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we have a new household head. We are born into the family of God. We are born into, by the Spirit of God, into the household of faith. That's what the New Testament talks about. So then we get our identity, our righteousness, our entrance to heaven through Jesus. He is our head. He takes us in. We get our identity from him. So through our trust in him, we gain a new identity, identity of those who are the righteous and we are welcomed into heaven. So where is heaven? Well, it is with Jesus. And what is heaven like? Well, we will be 
like Jesus. And who will be in heaven? Well, those who are in Jesus. Those are the simple foundational truths about heaven that we have to hold on to, even as we begin to use our imagination to wonder what else it would be like. Well, John's vision of the new heaven and new earth, it paints a beautiful picture, something we can anticipate and get excited about. But it still leaves a lot of unanswered questions. And you know what? That's okay. We're going to attempt some of those questions next week. But it's okay to have unanswered questions about heaven as long as we hold on to the foundational truths. John's intention in Revelation was to communicate a kind of confidence, a confidence that creation would be reborn just as certain as Jesus was raised from the dead. This is the hope of the prophets. This is the hope of scripture as a whole. This is what it's driving to from the garden to the city, all the way through that trajectory of scripture. This is God's redemption plan that God's domain and our domain will one day completely unite. That's the beauty of heaven. The whole earth will be a recreation of the garden and the glory of the temple will cover it. And that's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.